Good, well, there's an outline of where we're going in the next few minutes on the inside of the bulletin, and uh, you might like to have that open in front of you, together with uh, the text of Joshua 23. But uh, let's first pause and ask God to help us. Well, Heavenly Father, we do thank you for the great privilege of an open Bible, and on a day when we will be thinking of those many millions of Christians around the world who don't enjoy that privilege with the same freedom we have. Help us not to abuse that privilege. Give us mental alertness, humble hearts and attentive minds. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, when famous people die... Uh, we, we want to know their last words. What was the, the last thing they said before they passed away? Um, of course, death is a serious business. It's never funny. But sometimes a person's last words can have a slightly humorous quality about them. Uh, like the last words of General John Sedgwick. Um, He was killed in battle during the American Civil War in 1864. And as he was surveying the enemy lines, he turned to his colleague and uh, his last words were, they couldn't hit an elephant at this dist. One of my favourites are the last words of Lady Nancy Astor. Uh, She woke up briefly during her final illness to find her whole family standing around her bed. And her last words were, um, am I dying or is it my birthday? Uh, Sometimes the the last words of famous people can be a bit cynical, a bit bitter. Uh, As Karl Marx was dying, his housekeeper was waiting beside his bed. Uh, She had a pen in her hand, ready to jot down any immortal words of wisdom. But uh, Karl Marx simply said, last words are for fools who haven't said enough. Well, that's what he thought. Um, But the words of, the last words of men in the Bible are never, never foolish. They always have a far more serious content and significance. So, for example, uh, Genesis chapter 49 records the last words of Jacob as he blesses his twelve sons. And in that farewell speech, Jacob makes some remarkably accurate and important predictions about the future. The last recorded words of Moses make up pretty much the whole of the book of Deuteronomy, with vital instructions for God's people as they prepare to enter the land. And in the New Testament, of course, (coughs) the farewell speech of the Lord Jesus in the upper room, well, that's essential preparation for the disciples, telling them what's going to happen when Jesus is no longer physically with them. So the last words of Bible characters are always important. And in this last section of the book of Joshua we have the last recorded words of the great man himself. Significantly, I think, we're told on two occasions, in verse 1 and again in verse 2, that by this time, Joshua was old and well advanced in years. 
Now we don't know exactly how old he was when he spoke chapter 23, but the very next chapter, chapter 24, tells us that Joshua was 110 years old when he died. So he may have been in his late 90s when he spoke the words that we're looking at this morning. Now I think that is important because um, old age in the Bible is nearly always a sign of wisdom. Uh, Sadly, that's not always the case today. But in the Bible, when the elderly speak, people are listening. And Joshua, you see, is determined to pass on the wisdom that he has received from a lifetime spent walking closely with God. And what I think, what he has to say, I think, is something that the people of God cannot hear often enough. The key to Joshua's message in this chapter is the phrase in verse 1 that the Lord had given Israel rest from all their enemies around them. It's actually a little phrase that's been used three times before in the book and that's because Joshua is acutely aware that in this situation of peace and stability there are fresh dangers just around the corner. Now, that's always been true in the church, hasn't it? In times of persecution and difficulty, the church is usually wide awake, not always, but usually. But in times of rest and security, God's people frequently go to sleep and they're totally unprepared uh, for the dangers and tests that are never very far away. Well, here... Joshua is warning Israel that the future is going to provide even greater and bigger tests than the past. So the leaders need to know, as you and I need to know this morning, what we have to do in order to avoid disaster. You'll notice in the outline that I've divided the message up into three sections. And in the first section... Joshua urges them to review what you have seen. Uh, If you come with me to the end of verse 2, Joshua assembles the leaders and a very literal translation of the end of verse 2 and the beginning of verse 3 would be, as for me, I am old, but now, as for you, you have seen. In other words, I'm about to leave you, but you've witnessed a great deal of God's faithfulness that I'm now calling upon you to review. Review your experience of God's goodness. Remember everything that he's done for you. Now I want to say that that is a really wise spiritual instinct. Do you remember the psalmist says, forget not all his benefits, the Lord's benefits, And that's because, you see, as we look back and we remember what God has done for us in the past, we are thankful. And thankfulness deepens our relationship with God. I mean, you know that at a human level, don't you? Uh, If you do something for somebody and they're very appreciative, the relationship between you is deepened both by your giving 
and by their response. And it's exactly the same in our relationship with God. If we feel that our relationship with God is superficial, that there's not much depth or reality in it, well, try thanksgiving. Thank God for the many, many things that he's done for you. Because thanksgiving generates greater faith for the future, for tomorrow. That is the principle, the spiritual principle that Joshua is teaching here. We look back and we realise that all the spiritual blessings we now enjoy have been God's gracious gift to us. We didn't earn them. And that makes us realise just how dependent we are and how much we need to go on trusting God for all that we have to face in the future. Now you'll notice here that as Joshua looks to the future, he draws special attention to the nations. In fact, he mentions the nations seven times in these 16 verses. And that phrase is really a technical term for everybody who is outside God's covenant with Israel. Uh, because of their opposition to God's purposes for Israel, these nations have been fighting tooth and nail against the conquest. Many of them, of course, have already been defeated uh, and their lands have been divided up amongst the twelve tribes. But the point that Joshua is making to Israel is, look, you could never have done this by yourselves. So look with me, if you will, at the end of verse 3. He says, It was the Lord your God who fought for you. Now you see, again and again, the book has shown us that God has given Israel victory after victory, just as he promised all the way back in chapter 1. And it is looking back at what God has already done which motivates us to go on believing for the future. You see, for Israel, the challenge was that there are still some nations in the land who haven't been dislodged. Now, what's to be done with them? Look at verse 5. Can we all see verse 5? The Lord your God himself will drive them out of your way. He will push them out before you, and you will take possession of their land as the Lord your God promised you. Why should they believe that? Verse 9, The Lord has driven out before you great and powerful nations. To this day, no one has been able to withstand you. In fact, I don't know whether you picked this up, but there's almost a sense of effortlessness about the conquest so far. I mean, just look at verse 10. One of you routes a thousand, because the Lord your God fights for you just as he promised. You're a thousand times stronger than your opponent, says God. But not because you are superhuman, but only because the Lord your God fights for you. So the picture that Joshua is painting here is that as soon as the Lord enters the battle, the outcome 
is guaranteed. And Israel have seen that again and again and again. And that's why I think verse 14 is such a terrific memory verse, both for Israel then and for Christians today. I mean, just look at these famous words again and let them sink in. Verse 14, Joshua says, Now I am about to go the way of all the earth. You know with all your heart and soul that not one of all the good promises the Lord your God gave you has failed. Every promise has been fulfilled. Not one has failed. Now that was what Israel had seen and Joshua wanted them to think about it. But what about us? What have we seen? What should you and I be looking back on? Well, surely, the blessings of our conversion. The fact that God reached out and saved us. Um, For some of us, that happened when we weren't really interested in him and actually we were probably running away from him. But now, as we look back, we can see that our sins are forgiven. We look back on the deliverance that God has given to us day by day from the world, the flesh and the devil. We can look back on our own growth in godliness of character. Now that may not be as much as we would like, but we're not the people we were, are we? And the point is that what we've seen of God's powerful work in the past motivates us to go on trusting him day by day in the future. It helps us not to become complacent. Now next year the Soccer World Cup is going to be taking place in Russia. I know next to nothing about soccer. But I do know that for uh, England football fans, the World Cup is always an extremely stressful time. Because if England do manage by a miracle to proceed through the qualifying rounds, the fans know precisely what's going to happen. As the team look back and they see what they've managed to do to some of the weaker sides, their confidence will grow. But growing confidence always brings with it the danger of complacency. And each match that they win will tempt them to say, well, you know, this is easy. The next match, it's in the bag. And the fans know that when the England team starts saying that, disaster is never very far away. Uh, And I understand that England are playing Malta in two weeks' time, so watch this space. Now, of course, that principle operates in other areas of life as well. And here in Joshua 23, we see the danger for the people of God in every age. I mean, it's so easy, isn't it, for us to look back and instead of being motivated to active obedience and deeper faith, so easy for us to become complacent and especially complacent in our relationship with the Lord. You all know that. Therefore, point two. What you have seen, point one, point two, 
what you must understand. Come with me to verse 7. Do not associate with these nations that remain among you. Do not invoke the names of their gods or swear by them. You must not serve them or bow down to them. But you are to hold fast to the Lord your God as you have until now. Now you see, this was the great danger for Israel. A good portion of the land has already been taken. But there's still a lot more that needs to be possessed. And if that's going to happen, it's going to require razor-sharp clarity and a real commitment of energy to the task. You see, God's gift to his people is that when they are active and when they are obedient to his will, he will fight for them. He will guide. He will overcome the opposition. He will energise them. We saw that, didn't we, a couple of weeks ago with Caleb, that sprightly 85-year-old. But the point is, these gifts are only available to God's people as they fight the good fight. And the danger here, you see, is that 20 or maybe 25 years after they first entered the promised land, the danger is that Israel will settle for comfortable compromise with the nations that remain. And if that happens, the process in verse 7 will take over. Because compromise with the nations will almost certainly lead to idolatry. They'll start to worship gods that seem to be so much more accessible because they're tangible and visible, uh, that seem to be so much more influential because they've been created by man to serve man's agenda, that seem to be so much less demanding than the God of truth and righteousness. Now that danger is very real. And verses 12 and 13 describe the consequences. Verse 12, But if you turn away and ally yourselves with the survivors of these nations that remain among you, and if you intermarry with them and associate with them, then you may be sure that the Lord your God will no longer drive out these nations before you. Instead, they will become snares and traps for you, whips on your backs and thorns in your eyes, until you perish from this good land which the Lord your God has given you. So you see, God is not going to fight on behalf of people who are compromised in their commitment and casual in their obedience. Now that is the reality that the new generation must understand. That there really are only two ways to live. And while God is infinitely patient in his dealings with rebellious people, if Israel sets itself against God, if they are seduced by the gods of the culture, 
if they compromise in such a way that they are no longer distinctively different from everybody else, well then God will no longer fight their battles. And God is totally uncompromising about this. There is no room whatsoever for complacency. There can be no compromise between the God of Israel and the false gods of the nations. And you see, Joshua's point is that if you don't understand that, then you will be destroyed from the good land that the Lord God has given you. Now, I don't know what you think about that, but that's a rather sober warning to us, isn't it? It reminds us, for a start, that the default position of the human heart will always be to worship ourselves in the form of idols and to give first place in our lives to something other than God. And you and I know that these idols are all around us in the culture today, not uh, blocks of wood and stone. Today's idols are way more subtle than that. There are a whole range of things that seem to offer us freedom and fulfilment, but which actually, in the end, consume us. So we need to hear the very solemn warning of Joshua that the God of blessing, who very willingly pours out his grace into our lives, he will not tolerate rivals. And each of us needs to know where we personally are vulnerable to idolatry. Now, one of the books that uh, helps us to do this is by Tim Keller, the pastor of uh, Redeemer in New York City. His book is entitled Counterfeit Gods. And it's a very helpful analysis of the challenges that you and I face as we apply these principles from Joshua 23 in our 21st century world. Well, Tim Keller quite obviously describes an idol as a counterfeit god. And if you turn over to the back of the yellow question sheet, you can see how we can recognise them. Tim Keller writes this, quote... A counterfeit God is anything so central and essential to your life that should you lose it, your life would feel hardly worth living. An idol has such a controlling position in your heart that you can spend most of your passion and energy, your emotion and financial resources on it without a second thought. It can be family and children, or career and making money, or achievement and critical acclaim, or saving face and social standing. It can be a romantic relationship, peer approval, competence and skill, secure and comfortable circumstances, your beauty or your brains, a great political and social cause, your morality, your virtue, or even success in the Christian ministry. Because when your meaning in life is to fix somebody else's life, we may call it codependency, but it's really idolatry. An idol is whatever you look at and say in your heart of hearts, if I have that, then I will feel my life has meaning. Then I will know 
I have value, then I will feel significant and secure. Now that's a very challenging word, isn't it? And that's what lies behind Joshua's warning in chapter 23. The question, of course, is how are you and I going to respond? Because all of us in this room, without exception, are susceptible and vulnerable to idolatry. So how have you and I got to live in order to overcome the magnetism of idolatry so that we can go on experiencing God's presence and God's power and enjoy the fulfilment of God's promises in our lives. Well, that brings us to the third and final section of Joshua's message, How You Must Live. Now, I think it's very much God's grace to us that the uh, practical instruction in this chapter is crystal clear and it is as relevant to us today as it was to Israel then. And there are three things Joshua says we must do. The first is in verse 6. Verse 6. Be very strong. Be careful to obey all that is written in the book of the law of Moses without turning aside to the right or to the left. Now we've heard that from Joshua before but what's so interesting about it here is that that is almost a word-for-word repetition of the instruction given to Joshua right at the beginning of the book. You don't need to turn to it. But back in chapter 1 verse 7, God says to Joshua, Be strong and very courageous. Be careful to obey all the law my servant Moses gave you. Do not turn from it to the right or to the left. Now, at the beginning of the book, the big question was whether Joshua would prove to be a worthy successor to Moses. So I think it's very striking that when we get to his obituary next week in chapter 24, we'll see that that Joshua is given the same title that God gave to Moses, the servant of the Lord. It means, of course, that Joshua has proved to be a worthy successor to Moses in every way, precisely because verse 6 in chapter 23 has been the motto of his life. So let's pause and think about that for just a moment. Strength lies in obedience to the word of God without deviation to the right or to the left. That's what leads to separation from idolatry, the separation he's just been talking about. Only the word of God gives us the understanding that breaks the hold of idolatry over our lives. Only the word of God can expose the false gods and their false promises. So can you see that the way to overcome idolatry is to fill my mind with the word of God and to prove my faith by detailed obedience. Now, how does that work and why is this so important? 
Well, you see, if we're going to live an authentic Christian life, then you and I need the power of God to be flowing into our lives day by day by his Holy Spirit. But you see, what blocks the channel of that flow is our disobedience, our sinfulness, and our idolatry. And so you see, some of us don't experience uh, the grace and power of God as we might because we won't get rid of our idols and the result is that the channel between God and us gets blocked up. I mean, there's no shortage of grace and power on God's side, but somehow we, we prevent the grace of God reaching us because we're not obedient to the word of God. So the first thing we need to do if we're going to go on enjoying God's presence and his power in our lives is to feed on God's word and obey it. The second thing we need to do is in verse 8. Verse 8. But you are to hold fast to the Lord your God as you have until now. Now the word that's translated hold fast there is a very, very strong word. Um, It actually gives us uh, the Hebrew word for glue. Uh, And you'll find it in Genesis 2 where it's used to describe a husband holding fast to his wife so that the two become one flesh. So that phrase, you see, is talking about total commitment, uh, loyal devotion, and deep affection. Now that is what God is looking for from his people. It's actually how Israel have been living during the conquest. But you see, that's what makes the repetition of the verb in verse 12 so shocking and unexpected. Have a look at verse 12. Joshua says, But if you turn away and ally yourselves, literally, hold fast to the survivors of these nations that remain among you, certain things will happen. You see, that is the alternative. I mean, to our minds, it's almost unthinkable, isn't it? But the idea is that instead of holding fast to God, God's redeemed people go back to the paganism of the surrounding culture and hold fast to that in such a way that they become indistinguishable from the nations. I mean, it's almost beyond belief. And yet, which of us here this morning doesn't know that it can so easily happen to us? Now, we've got to be realistic about this. It's no good you and I sitting here this morning and saying, well, that couldn't possibly happen to me. Because that is precisely the sort of person to whom it does happen. No, we've got to hold fast to the Lord as you have until now. So there's no room for complacency. Rather, I've got to recognise that unless I am attached to him and holding fast to him, the culture will swallow me up. And it's only as we hold fast to the Lord that we experience the Lord's grace and power in our lives. 
And lastly, third thing, the heart of it all, verse 11. So be very careful to love the Lord your God. Now this is very interesting. Won't you notice that by the way Joshua puts that, this is not automatic. There are no assumptions about this. It's got to be highly intentional. Be very careful. Give your fullest attention to this. Make it the focus of your Christian living and discipleship to love the Lord your God. Now we know from elsewhere in the Old Testament and of course also from the Lord Jesus that that is going to take everything we've got. Our heart, our soul, our mind and our strength. Of course for us, that love finds finds its focus in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we love him because he first loved us. And he showed that love, didn't he? As he hung on the cross and suffered in our place as an atonement for sins, making it possible for you and I to be forgiven. And we're going to be thinking about that together in a moment as we celebrate the Lord's Supper. But remember, won't you, that the cross that brought forgiveness also brought victory. Victory over our enemies, um, over sin, over death, and over the devil. And uh, as the Lord gave Israel rest from all her enemies, verse 1, so Jesus fought our enemies for us and gave us the victory. And because of him, we have begun to enjoy God's promised rest. Now, before we close, uh, let me take you to the New Testament comment on that. Won't you turn, please, to Hebrews 4 on page 852. Hebrews chapter 4, page 852. This gives us the New Testament application of rest for Christians. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 8, page 852. Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 8. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken later about another day. There remains then a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For anyone who enters God's rest also rests from his own work, just as God did from his. Now, what does that mean? Well, it means that as Christians, you and I have come into our inheritance, the inheritance God has given to us, by hearing the good news and by responding in faith. In the famous words of Martin Luther, we heard the gospel and we said, yes, this is for me. And we've already begun to enjoy God's promised rest. Why? Because we're no longer 
trying to make ourselves acceptable to God by anything that we do. Is that right? Rather, we're trusting entirely and exclusively in what Jesus Christ has done for us. Our confidence is not in our track record, it is in his track record. Now friends, that is what it means to love the Lord. To hold fast to him, to trust him and to obey him. That is what it means to enter into rest now and to look forward to the fulfilment of it in heaven. So can you see that that loving God is entirely relational? To love God is to embrace his word. It is to live in repentance and faith every day. And it is to pursue a lifestyle of daily detailed obedience. And it is believing that he will fulfil all of his great and precious promises. And if we really love him, well, we'll express it in in overflowing praise and worship. We will want to speak well of him whenever we can and wherever we go. We will want to serve him, to please him, and be willing, if necessary, to suffer and possibly die for him. Now that is the challenge that Joshua put before the next generation back in chapter 23 and it is the challenge that the Holy Spirit puts before us this morning. So let me ask you, is the power of God flowing into your life daily so that you experience God's presence and you know that God is fighting for you? Is that happening? If not, let me remind you that God hasn't forgotten you. He sent his son to die for you. There is no shortage of power or grace from God that is available to you. But maybe, maybe the channel down which that grace flows has got blocked up. If that is the case, can I suggest that it would be good today and through this week for us to be asking ourselves, am I holding fast to the Lord or am I holding fast to the culture? Am I intentional about loving the Lord or am I actually running after other gods? Well, that's plenty to keep us occupied this week. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this wonderful chapter that puts before us so clearly the principles on which we are to live our lives in your world as your rescued people. We thank you for the rest that has come to us through the cross of Jesus, that we rest from our works because by faith in him 
and through his grace and mercy we are justified freely. And we ask that you would help us to live this week as grateful, justified sinners. That we may call upon all the resources of your promises and your power. And please, Lord, expose to us our idols so that we might turn from them and serve the Lord alone for the honour of your name. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen.